The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Taxes go against the very spirit of free enterprise. That's why they call it free. The government needed revenues to fund the new social program. Wage subsidies for the poor, retirement benefits for the aged, health care for... Stop, stop, stop. I had no idea things had gotten so bad. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 4th, 2007. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing, just right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to the show this morning. Our last show, actually, before the Ontario provincial election, which will be taking place on October 10th of next week. The number to call if you'd like to join the conversation today, it's 519-661-3600, or you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail. Com. And this being the last week before the election, I am joined in studio today for your interest and for your uh, perhaps consideration in the upcoming election by NDP candidate for London North Centre, Steve Holmes. How are you today, Steve? I'm doing well, considering all of the talking I've been doing lately. I imagine. <laughs> uh, how's, how's the campaign been going so far? It's been very enjoyable. Uh, most of the people that I've met on uh, doorsteps have been very receptive. I've had an awful lot of uh, conversations with people, which sort of seems to be in my nature, my nature and uh, things have been going quite well. Now, you know, t- I'm looking at you now. We've met for the first time, although we spoke a little bit on the phone last week. Um, I've got to be honest with you, you don't strike me as my typical image of an NDPer. You're about my age. You're wearing a suit. You're wearing a tie. You're looking a little conservative today. <laughs> Maybe more in the business of representing people. Ah, that, well, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, you told me a little bit before we went on the air, but let's share that with the public. Sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, East London. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate to actually purchase the house I grew up in, so I'm in the neighborhood that I grew up in now, even as uh, as an adult, as you pointed out. Um, I have been a city bus driver for 33 years, and so I've had an uh, awful lot of conversations with a lot of people. Not all of them pleasant, but an awful lot of them uh, have been uh, very positive with ideas for people that uh, they think would make a positive uh, change in uh, not just government, but uh, social issues and everything else. So that's sort of where I come from. Um, I'm the uh, the president of my local now uh, at the uh, ATU 741 uh, that represents all of the unionized employees of uh, London Transit. And I, oh, said, I wasn't aware of that. That's, we'll have to talk about that a little later. Sure. And uh, well, that's sort of where the, the, uh, the basis of representing people came from, which um, actually made up my mind an awful lot about uh, have, about whether I would run or not in this election. I also sit on uh, London District Labor Council, mm-hmm. and uh, I represent people uh, um, at WSIB uh, through an organization called the uh, Occupational Disability Response Team. So you've you've been in the public eye for a while then, in, uh, even within the sphere of your employment and your uh, basic environment. Um, what was it particularly that attracted you to the New Democratic Party as opposed to the Liberal or the Conservatives or one of the other parties? 
Well, uh, early on in my uh, union uh, life, mm-hmm. uh, I realized that our union actually helped form the uh, NDP. And uh, it was interesting to see that um, our view and, and uh, mine has been all along that the NDP really has uh, uh, working people's views in mind and take those 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 forward, uh, recognizing that the uh, um, uh, not top of the socioeconomic scale are represented more more fairly, I think, by the NDP than uh, any of the other parties. And. Aside from the, the basic labor background issues, what other are, are the other main issues as you see it for the party? I understand there were six uh, fundamental planks of the Howard Hampton campaign this time. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and they're all related. Everything that we look at, I mean, I, I'm, I find my, in, my position really kind of odd in that I see relationships between uh, health care and transportation, uh, relationships between... Um, affordable housing and um, and the environment. A- and it, it seems to me that every time you take away or you think about taking away something or think about adding something, you have to see how it impacts on everything else. Uh, it, perhaps it's because of all the activity I've had in public transit and seeing how, um, for example, the Middlesex Health Board looks at public transit as being important for health care in that it uh, it assists in uh, cleaning up the air, the, the fewer cars we have, then, of course, the uh, the less pollution there will be in the air, and then the less uh, lung disease or uh, those kinds of things we have. So, so, all so you see all the issues related, but, but what are those six issues, those six major issues? Well, they're, they're, they're ba- they break down to fairness and uh, recognizing that we need... Um, health care for everyone, uh, accessible health care for everyone, including dental care. Uh, we recognize mm-hmm. that some of the things that have been taking, taken out of uh, the, uh, um, the delisted services were things that uh, helped us prevent a lot of uh, health care problems. And we think that uh, <clears throat> if we could uh, relist those and, uh, and increase, uh, as we said, the dental care so that people have... Um, Access to early um, er, uh, early opportunities, I guess you should say, to recognize diseases, then we'll end up uh, spending less down the road. So that's that's one is the health care. Uh, another one is the environment. Uh, Howard uh, mentioned early in his campaign a program that he calls uh, Green Lights. Uh, okay. We talk about um, uh, conserving. Uh, absolute, uh, the first thing that you, we believe you have to do um, if you're going to do anything w- environmental is begin to conserve and we have to start doing that as soon as possible and uh, along with that becomes uh, a decentralization of uh, power generation in other words going to things like uh, um, wind uh, solar power mm-hmm. and uh, things like that getting away from the uh, no matter what the source uh, other than perhaps the uh, the uh, generating station at Niagara Falls that uses water, uh, all of the others that uh, the technologies that man has come up with uh, since horses cranking wheels around seems to be, uh, whether you're talking about coal-fired generators or nuclear power generators, they all seem to uh, cause, uh, in our view, big problems for the environment. And so we need to find different ways um, to not just uh, generate uh, power but also uh, to reduce the use. And so that's our, our Green Lights program in the environment. 
Well, you know, it's funny, just speaking about the power issue itself, I've, I've been, you know, conserving electricity naturally just as a consequence of its price you want to save on it. But it's not worth it saving it anymore because we have all these uh, government-run monopolies. I, like, I can look at my current uh, London Hydro bill, for example, at our office. We use about 30-some-odd dollars worth of power for the month, and yet our bill is close to $100. There's a $45 transmission fee. There's a debt retirement fee. There's, uh, you know, other things added, including taxes on top of that. Where is there any incentive for someone like me to want to save electricity? In my case, I'd want to use more just to get my money's worth because what little I can save out of that $30 a month, I could, you know, I'd have to cut back tremendously to save a dollar or two. And is it worth the effort? Because the rest of the money I won't save. There's nothing, no payoff for me. And I hate to do this because um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a guy named Adam Beck. Okay. And, and the only reason I say I hate to do that is because he was a conservative. But but we think he had the right idea. Back then, uh, you know. Well, I'm going to come back to you on that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you why you think you're different from conservatives. But go uh, ahead. In some, in some ways, uh, you know. Anyway, we uh, Adam Beck went around uh, telling everybody that we should be supplying uh, power at cost. And the whole idea was that uh, back in those days, there were private companies that were... Uh, uh, generating their own electricity. Um, a lot of them were, uh, uh, again, in my realm, public transit properties that mm -hmm. were electrifying their street railways and stuff like that. And they realized that since they were already having to put telephone poles up and or hydro poles up, we call them telephone poles, hydro poles up now uh, to run the wires out for their street cars to run on, mm -hmm. then what? why don't we just start selling it to the public and selling it to other companies? So they started doing that. Um, several of them were becoming very rich at it, and, and the people, like yourself, the way you're looking at it now, felt, gee, I'm paying an awful lot for this. Why am I, you know, why, why am I paying for it when... You know, like there's this opportunity. They they started looking at the the water power at Niagara Falls and said, why don't we make the water falling down, turn a generator, generate electricity, and and have it for everyone? So Ontario Hydro was born, and and the the whole idea was that industry and the public could then have it have uh, affordable. Uh, well, what was the situation before? My understanding was that before that there were some private producers of power. And uh, they could produce it at an affordable uh, price to people because otherwise they wouldn't have been using it at all and they wouldn't have been in business. Wouldn't, isn't that how it works? Well, it, it would be nice if it worked that way. The problem was people were complaining because there was too much, uh, there, was, there was too much gouging going on, or what they appeared to be. And, and uh, hydro, uh, the hydro was not available to the general public at the same rate that it was uh, available to industries. Some industries were, uh, uh, because they were generating their own, Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're charging... You see, the, you, you, did, you did mention quite correctly that Adam Beck, you know, being a conservative, and he's talking about this uh, philosophy of power at cost. Uh, I think that philosophy ex expands beyond just electricity, but to a lot of services, where, you, where, where for some reason, most politicians and most parties um, believe that they can deliver some kind of service at cost. I, as a consumer, on the other hand, don't care about cost. I care about the price. And, of course, when government provides a service, the price is free, but the cost is very high, but it's paid by the taxpayer. Uh, like, to me, what would the difference be if I could buy, say, from two different power generators or two different phone companies or whatever? I could be paying a lower price to company A, 
who is just barely making even and therefore, or breaking even and therefore uh, giving me power at cost, or an even lower price at company B, but they're making a lot of money, way above cost. They're, they're making a big profit, yet the price to them is less than to the price, you know, you know what I'm saying, than, than to the other company that's running less efficiently. So why should I be concerned about how much something costs as long as the price is affordable to me? Well, I guess if if price is the only thing you look at, then... Uh, th then it's I'd not the only thing. You look at value and quality and all that, but that's all part of the consideration. Uh, uh, let me... Um, recently, I had, a, had a, an opportunity to write an article for our newsletter at work, and I pointed out that um, in London, we used to, and Ontario presumably, but I'll use the example of London, we used to look at success uh, as... Uh, how well uh, f for how well a company was doing by how much it was uh you know um contributing to society if we look at for example uh, maybe now it's a bad example but the McCormick's plant for a long time it was seen as a very successful company because it employed a lot of people a lot of people mm -hmm. that worked there were then uh uh members of society that were purchasing from the local economy keeping the local economy going and and that that was seen as a measure of success and i think uh recently we've changed around so that no longer is the measure of success uh how much a company's putting back into the economy or or the local economy instead they're seeing how much money they're turning over to their stock to their stockholders so when you look at how much you pay for goods, often it's uh, better off for the economy that you're living in to purchase goods that are either manufactured here or have uh, better working conditions for their employees because uh, then I, I don't understand more success that. going back if, into the uh, local economy. If I have $100 and I can buy, say, something for $20 from the States that would cost me 30 or $40 here in Canada, let's say, I would still have $80 left after buying that product from the states rather than Canada. That would be a comparative advantage that the states would have over us in terms of that pricing, which won't, which isn't going on right now with the way the Canadian dollar is, but let's just suppose. Uh, how is that better for the economy when I've got more consumer dollars left by always buying at the lowest price for the quality that I want to, to have? I don't see how paying more particularly benefits anyone. We're in a global economy, or is that not what the NDP supports? Um, I would I would say probably not. Uh, the I think you have to look at uh, if if the global economy supported uh, workers' rights, uh, uh, civil rights, and all those things, then perhaps we could we could believe in that. Uh, what we see, or from the labor movement and uh, presumably from the whole of the NDP, we see that there are uh, uh, powers that are being uh, levied um, and and levered that are not uh, taking into consideration uh, environmental issues, uh, human rights issues, workers' uh, workers' conditions, and all those things. So although you could buy the stuff in the States perhaps for, uh, for a lesser price, I guess it, it, it's a bit of an not enough information to, to make a decision on because if you're buying something in the States that's perhaps made in China and it's meeting the American standards but doesn't meet ours, for example, about uh, well, the, the, lead what, paint on toys. Well, that's a, that's a separate issue, I would think. I would, I'm just, we're just talking not about poisons and, and harmful things, but just consumer goods that people would like. 
and uh, that aren't harmful in any particular way. But that's what raises uh, the costs on some goods, is the protections for the purchaser at, at the end results. Well, that would be trade barriers, and you're, you're actually arguing against trade barriers. No, I'm... That's what raises the prices of things. The prices... Are, uh, you're arguing about the price. I'm talking about the protection of the consumer. Well, the consumer is only concerned with the price. Again, no. I don't care if company A or B is You've making or losing assumption. money. You've made a large assumption that all consumers only care about price. Well, they, they, they may say things, but when it comes to pull, pulling the dollars out of their wallet, that's exactly what you're measuring is real demand, not, not wishing or, or anything of that nature. I have a lot of friends who don't shop at certain stores mm -hmm. because although they advertise that they have much lower prices, they don't care for the working conditions or... Oh, I'm or like that myself. Stuff. I'll go to the store, it has a better service. Uh, okay. You know, I think, okay, let's leave that one for now. We're going to take a break. 661-3600 if you want to ask any questions or join the conversation. And when we get back, we'll get, when we come back, rather, we'll talk a little bit more about the labor issues. And we'll be right back. It isn't fair. And we're not going to take it. Since when? Since right now. So what are we going to do about it? We're going to fight back in the only way we can. We're going to form a... A... A what? We're going to form... A union! A U.S. postal person said, Neither rain nor sleet nor dark of night shall stay the messenger from his appointed rounds. A Canadian postal person said, We don't have to take this crap. We're out of here. Welcome back to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can join us at 519-661-3600. I am joined in studio today by NDP candidate for London North Centre, Steve Holmes. Welcome again, Steve, and let's carry on the conversation right now. Is, is, is the NDP still the party for Labour, do you think? Yes. And is, is that a, a growing constituency? Because... You know, I'll, I'll tell you what my difference is. Of course, you already know that you and I come from totally different ends of the spectrum, so that's, uh, that's already to be taken for granted. But uh, why would you consider the NDP a party for labor, and who do you actually mean by labor? Do you mean the average worker or just unionized workers? I not only include the average worker, but I also include those trying to enter the workforce, those who have been in the workforce, have retired, who want to either continue as a... Uh, like a volunteer or, you know, like as a sort of having a second job after they've retired just to keep themselves busy. Uh, all of those people, I think, are I, we consider part of the labor force, and that's uh, part of the, uh, um, the, the people that uh, the NDP, I think, stand up for. Well, what, what does the NDP offer uh, to the labor segment, say, that, that you don't think the other parties do? Um when i guess if you look back to uh, when the uh, conservatives were in power there was an awful lot of strife going on about unions and about labor and and uh, labor was uh, told uh, 
And I can say we were told that we were a special interest group and we wouldn't be listened to and we didn't really have a relevant voice. And yet there was an awful lot of issues that we kept bringing forward that that now have been picked up, I think, by some of the other parties and, uh, and realize they're important. Do you not agree that labor is a special interest group? I don't necessarily know either way if you think labor is a special interest group or not. I guess my, my, my question, I think it was an improper statement to make in the, in the way it was made in that we were told we wouldn't be listened to because we didn't have a relevant voice because we were a special interest group. Mm -hmm. But I'm asking it as a generic question. Would you say labor is a special interest group? We could very well be ha perhaps be seen as one. Uh, but it depends on okay. why. You know, why well, I agree with you, and I yeah. think business is a special interest group too, yeah. Yeah. and so are voters. And that's exactly <laughs> so. And that, that uh, was that was our point at the time: was whether we're a special interest group or not. You should be listening to the ideas that we have and the things we we were trying to bring forward. Well, as uh, um, I understand that uh, labor, or sorry, union representation of labor has been falling lately, and and it's a smaller percentage of the total workforce. If unions are such a great thing for the average worker, why wouldn't the trend be going the other way? Well, society uh, dictates different things at different times. And I think when, um, when unions uh, were uh, in uh, bad t or worse times, when there, when there were less protections for working people and when there were less... Uh, less things in place that that automatically uh, legislation and stuff like that then um, then there was um, more need for uh, labor to organize mm -hmm. and uh, for people to unionize and uh, I think perhaps some people see now that because uh, some things have been uh, entrenched in legislation I think they they see a little more or a little less need rather for uh, for unions and uh, I think they, they've just become uh, less necessary in some people's view but in in my view not all unions are the same most of the unions in London I also sit on London District Labor Council most of the unions in London participate uh, a great deal uh, in a lot of social programs in a lot of uh, uh, necessary um, what we see as necessary uh, organizations mm -hmm. and stuff like that uh, you know the, the United well it's interesting ways, you say that I, I, uh, I once debated Sid Ryan on a television show in Toronto and uh, one of the things I mentioned to him as a representative of labor is that labor seems to be doing a lot of lobbying political lobbying and I jokingly said, you know, you guys are lobbyists. We just happen to do a little collective bargaining on the side. But uh, you see this a lot. I mean, he was on the show railing against Israel, uh, doing all sorts of things that are supposedly being said in the na name of uh, of labor and, and workers and members of unions. Um, is this really the proper sphere or prerogative of a union? Isn't a union supposed to really be representing the member who pays the dues? Uh, unions are interesting animals in that the the, uh, the the most of the ones that I know of, and I, I could be wrong, they perhaps don't all work this way, but all of the ones that I know of have monthly meetings and members are all invited to, uh, you know, come out and attend the meeting and have their voice. And and uh, the uh, union executives are, are directed by the, by the uh, members of their union in what they do. And if uh, somebody steps out and uh, starts talking about something that their membership doesn't like, um, it's kind of like uh, election time comes around every so many years, and 
they won't be speaking. I think when you see people like uh, Sid Ryan, uh, uh, Bob White for a long mm -hmm. time was a, a large voice for a lot of social issues. Uh, uh, there's an awful lot of people who have come through the uh, labor movement who have ended up speaking on behalf of not just organized labor, but uh, you know, just working Well, you people. see, here's where I see labor, the labor movement as, as a special interest. I do hear a lot of them, and they might be doing a good job for their members, don't get me wrong here, but when they're, when they're advocating things like higher minimum wages, when in fact their own members are well above the minimum wage, I don't really see that personally as doing a favor for the worker. I see them as trying to crowd out the competition and narrow the labor field for themselves. Am I looking at that completely wrong? I, I, I guess I don't understand where that's coming from. Recognize... Well, the, 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 the worker's main uh, competition is other workers, no? Isn't that why unions call uh, people who cross picket lines, they call them scabs and things like that? And, and uh, you know, I've always wondered why, why isn't competitive labor considered as important a thing as competitive business? I guess it, it, in, in your from what I'm hearing from you, your definition of competitive labor is what we call the race to the bottom, mm -hmm. who will do it the cheapest, not necessarily who has the, again, I'll go back to the example I gave you about a successful company. You have to look, or we think you should be looking at whether or not uh, a company is recontributing or reinvesting in in the, in the local economy and that's how you should be guessing or uh, gauging whether or not they're successful as opposed to how much money they're turning over to their stockholders. Uh, well, I, I don't think that speaks to the issue of the worker, though, and that's more on the business end of things. This, this idea of race to the bottom, um, I'm self-employed. I'm not affected by minimum wages, so I can work for less and often do. I'm not racing to the bottom. I'm, I can get by uh, sometimes. Not all the time, but I, my, my, my income goes up and down. Uh, you know, unions are always talking about job security and yet advocating higher pay. Isn't job security, wouldn't that be more guaranteed by lowering pay and thereby being able to compete more, especially internationally? don't necessarily agree with that, and that's where you get back to the trade barrier. Or not yeah. advocating more, you know, more raises at a time when business is tough. Wouldn't that be the same thing? I guess, again, you have to look at it. I mean, you're, you're making some general statements there. For example, if you look back to the Bob Ray days, uh, when the NDP government was in, in power, we came across a global recession. How did Ontario get through that? Bob Ray came out and, and uh, dealt with his friends and got them to uh, take back uh, their raises. Well, the social contract. Their, uh, sure. Uh, well, that wasn't... That was to his friend's <laughs> the social contract was with government employees, if I recall, was it not? He, could, he, he wasn't affecting the private sector at that time with any legislation. The private sector became affected because of the way that the public sector was affected. Well, sure, but not directly by the law, just by the fact that uh, he held wages down for a while because he had to. Well, he didn't hold them down, as a matter of fact. He entered into agreements with people. And to keep to, to stop them from a asking for for more money for a period of time wasn't that and the, the nature of the agreement? And the labor movement carried the province through. They agreed to those things by and they took those not asking for more. So if that worked, then why would why wouldn't they continue the practice and try to be more efficient? Because presently we're told that the economy is chugging along and doing very well. So if the economy is doing very well, why aren't the people? Uh, that are doing the work and, and performing the services being being compensated more
because the economy is doing better. It's kind of like, you know, there's a, do you recognize the, the prosperity gap that's growing and widening and deepening? The B prosperity gap between the upper and uh, the rest of the uh, um, economic scale. Well, if you you're trying to say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, yeah. um, I don't know that the latter is true. I, I imagine there's a larger gap because people are able to get richer. Well, actually, we're measuring so much uh, much of our of that value in inflated dollars, so you can't compare a guy what he's making today to what they made 30, 40 years ago. In uh, actual fact, the prosperity gap doesn't just talk about the people at the top and the people at the bottom. No, of what not. we're losing. And what the real problem with the prosperity gap is the is the people in the middle. Oh, the I'm people I, in the middle I, are I agree with you there. The middle class is the one that bears uh, the weight of all the government social programs. Really, when it comes down to it, wouldn't you say? And wouldn't that be a reason to cut back on social programs? Like I'm I'm living in a country where half of my income goes to roughly you know forty to a little over fifty, depending where you are, to governments. And do you get anything out of that? Not that I can see. I get a, I get a health care system that uh, you have to wait for service, uh, especially How'd even... How'd you get here? Sorry? How'd you get here today? Get here to the station on roads and on in my car, in my private car. Okay, so rather than uh, drive on a cart path, you got to drive on an asphalt paved road. Well, that's well, not a social program. A road is not the same it's thing. It's an infrastructure. It's, it's an, an infrastructure. infrastructure that's paid for through the taxation system. And health care, I don't regard as that. As well. Well, we we don't we don't have a health care we have a health care system that prevents me from paying my doctor. There's a law against me pulling out my wallet and paying my doctor. Mm -hmm. That's not a health care system. What? That's a health care monopoly, and that's why I have to stand in line or go to another country to get quick health care, as many Canadians are finding themselves forced to do. Because of the cutbacks that have been put in place by previous governments. Again, that's because they're running the show and they're trying yep, to uh, save money. Back in 1993, they all got together and decided we had too many doctors at the Banff Convention. And all the first, uh, all the health ministers of all the provinces said, we're going to cut back on the number of doctors. And they did. And now we're paying the price. Had the marketplace been allowed to rule, we'd have m probably more doctors than we need. And that would bring the prices down. Of course, prices you're not concerned with, you're concerned with costs. Is that... Is that it? I, I, I wouldn't say the prices aren't aren't a concern, but it, it's the cost and, and the way things. I mean, it's kind of like well, the way I look at it is it's kind of like uh, I couldn't afford to buy a, a bus to run to run a public transit system. But if ever if I had a whole bunch of friends who kicked in, then we could afford a bus. That would be better for the environment. Mm -hmm. That, that could also be called a corporation or or a business. Could be. And, could be. Uh, but why does it have to be a government? A government is a different instrument than a. The city of London has decided they want public transit. Yeah, that's a corporation. Okay, so they run a public transit. Well, yes. They, so it is a corporation. But beyond that, and this is the part, I don't mind, if, I don't think they should be doing that, but beyond that, they prevent you and I from starting our own public transit company. To sure, well, the public deserves uh, some sort of a protection for their investment. Don't protection, you agree with that? Protection of what? From, from, from uh, somebody who might compete and do a better job? Or somebody who might compete and take advantage of, uh, for example, uh, if you just allowed anyone to run buses and pick up fares, which is... Why do you assume I'm saying we allow anyone? <laughs> I'm not assuming yeah. anything, but I, I was trying to answer a question. So if you want to finish it, go right ahead. No, no. well, th this is a two-way discussion. I'm not thinking that anybody off the street without a license or who can't drive should be able to do so. You, there's all sorts of qualifications. The private sector has very strict qualifications. 
both in education and, and even in transport. Um, I don't know why you think that uh, public transit has an exclusive monopoly on that. As I was saying, the city of London has decided they want to put a public service in place. Mm -hmm. And it's public tra in, in the realm of public transit, they've decided they will run services both at times when uh, ridership is heavy and at times when ridership isn't at places where ridership is, is uh, heavy, and at other places to serve or to bring people to those places where the ridership is heavy. And I think what you need to do is you have to look at the agreement that they have says they will service everybody, and they'll service them during all of these hours. Mm -hmm. Okay, so during those hours, the, the City of London has said, we'll get London Transit to supply those services. And no one else can come along and do that because they would presumably, if they were uh, smart business people, they would come along and do the routes that pay the most and, of course... Well, at least on which they can survive or make a living, right? The ones that pay the most. Yeah. That's the ones they would do. Of course. Which would leave the other routes that don't pay the most to be serviced by whom? by wh whomever, but the issue is... Um, the City of London has agreed that they would have public transit. True, but the issue is that the taxpayers paying for that service, and I think that's right. that is that's exactly what right. the City of London Transit has that's different from uh, a normal company. Let's leave that issue now and go on to... Uh, we're going to take a break now and go on to a more broad issue that affects uh, beyond the political parties, and that's the issue that we're all expected to vote on on the upcoming referendum, and we'll be back right after this break. Now the, you know, some people say, well, Williams, uh, we live, you know, all these things you rail against are a result of the fact that we are a democracy and majority rules. Well, first I try to tell the person who says that, well, the framers did not intend for it to be a democracy. They wanted us to be a republic. But more importantly than that, I don't find gang rape any better than individualized rape. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that just because you vote to rape somebody doesn't make it right. You cannot vote if you're insane, but you can get elected. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, or you can call 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in the conversation. I am joined today in the studio by NDP candidate for London North Centre, Steve Holmes. And we've had a lively debate so far on certainly issues of philosophic differences. I don't know how different we're going to be on this upcoming issue, which affects all of you. You won't be voting for a party on this particular issue, and that is uh, the upcoming referendum that's going to be held concurrently with the election. And it's basically first-past-the-post versus mixed-member proportional. Um, First thing, Steve, does, does the NDP have an official um, 
platform or stand on this on this particular issue, or is it more of an individual approach, candidate by candidate, or or is it even an issue in that sense? Just leave it to the voters to decide. Well, we we recognize that there's been um, a failing, I guess, if you want to put it that way, of the first past the post uh, structure for some time. Uh, we see how many uh, how many votes it takes for some parties to get a seat, as opposed to how many votes. Uh, that are put in for candidates from other parties that end up with fewer seats per vote. So we believe there should have been some sort of uh, um, uh, a different system put in place, and this one appears to us to be uh, uh, fairly uh, more representative of of, uh, of a system. And so you'd say you're more or less in favor yep. of it. Um, so what what do you see as the failing? You said the the first past the first post has a failing in it. Um, what is the nature of that failing? Just that we don't have true 51% majorities? No, I mean, we've had 36% sure. majorities, you know, like, and, and we, we believe that those aren't true representatives of, truly representative of uh, what the people uh, really are asking for in representation. So why then would we go with a system that would increase the number of seats in the House and allow political parties. Now, remember, I'm the president of a political party, so you might think I would think this would be a good thing, but I don't. Um, but it would give this power to political parties to appoint a certain number of the seats and, you know, in that sense, almost take a bit of the voters' vote away from him in the riding. Why not just a pre preferential vote within the riding where um, for example, you could have a first, second, or third choice, and if your first one gets bumped off right away, your second vote would be counted, and then you would still have a basic first-past-the-post system, but with uh, a fair representation within the riding. Why not go that route instead of uh, the MMP, which requires a complete re rejigging of all the ridings and increasing the power of... Uh, of political parties, quite frankly, and independents are practically pushed out of the picture entirely from, from how I look at it. Would I, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't uh, chosen as uh, one of the committee that mm -hmm. uh, looked at all the different systems. Uh, I've heard of uh, three or four different systems, uh, one of them you just described. Uh, the one that they've put, put forth is, uh, is a mixed system, w which means that they're going to look at not just, you'll, you'll still have your first past the post person to represent you. Uh, however, you will also have an opportunity to be re represented by a party, um, and so you will actually be represented twice. Uh, well, that's sort of a contradiction in terms, I would think. Um, do uh, you know? Even again, even though I run run a political party, parties are private associations and private organizations. And for taxpayers to either be funding them or forced to deal with them as part of the political apparatus, which is what I see this moving towards, making parties more of an official part of the electoral structure. Um, I don't know that I see that as a good thing because right away uh, it's the parties that get in on the ground floor of the system that are going to be the permanent fixtures and the future looks kind of bleak for the average guy who might want to run as an independent or even start a new party. Is, is there no danger that you see in that respect? I, I don't see a danger in that. I have to say that not everybody in the NDP uh, thinks that this is a good way to go. Um, I've spoken with several members of our party who, you know, see problems with it as well. However, the way I look at it is I would um, uh, I would 
uh, I can't guarantee because I don't. <laughs> you can't do that. But it seems to me hmm. that any any party who, who realistically looks at themselves as being democratic will have a mechanism in place to uh, choose those people that they put on the list that will be that will be a democratic um, um, way of choosing people. They won't be just uh, you know putting people's name on a list, and that list will be posted. Uh, before the election, so everybody who votes, when they go in to vote, they, they'll know whose names are on that list and they'll know who they're voting for. I find that very hard to believe considering I don't think most people know their who they're voting for in the local riding, even under first past the post. It, it, it just seems to me that a party like the NDP should be on the first past the post side because at least if you get elected that way and get a majority, as, as the party has had once, you can rule, quote, or, or govern according to your own stated uh, principles and policies and guidelines. Whereas if you were always forced into compromising with the liberals and the conservatives, etc., I don't see how that would be uh, of an advantage to you. I certainly want, wouldn't want to be governing in that situation. How could you be held accountable for your policies if they're always being watered down? Uh, do you see an advantage to the first pass the post for smaller parties? Not necessarily. No? No, I, I mean, over the last uh, several, uh, uh, federally is a good example, uh, and our party has uh, has had some say in, in a lot of the issues that have been going on. We, you know, we've been able to convince um, from the position of, uh, like an opposition position, uh, you know, bring some, some good ideas and uh, some things forward. That's, that's what I think this is uh, more likely to do. You're going to have more people uh, involved that, that uh, may not be involved, well, won't be involved with the, uh, if we continue the first past the post, there are some people with some good ideas in some of the other parties that will then be able to uh, be brought in with uh, some good ideas and, and uh, start looking at some other solutions to problems. Yeah, it's interesting. Most people are are sort of judging the two systems based on how they think or how they might predict the outcome to be, not really looking at the process itself and they're kind of judging them more from the outcome. Now, you're representing a party that's called the New Democratic Party. In other words, it sort of has a sense of democracy about it. Um, what would make a New Democrat different from an old Democrat? Or is that just playing with words? You're probably playing with words. Okay. Social but, democracy but, but, is social democracy, and what we've brought it through now to the issues that we're dealing with are, are new, and uh, that's... that's uh, well, that's interesting. I always thought democracy was more a word that stood on its own. It didn't need an adjective. Uh, when you refer to social democracy, how would that be different from just democracy? Well, if you're talking about democracy, how, how, you, how you, decide your, you decide things... And social democracy is just making sure that uh, uh, that uh, everyone in in society uh, gets a gets a chance at that decision and has a voice in it. And uh, don't we all have that now? Uh, for example, if you uh, live somewhere that has a um, conservative or a liberal uh, uh, majority government, and your choices are not theirs, uh, although you have voted for someone who didn't win you then may not have because there are some people who go around saying you're a special interest group and I'm not going to listen to you. 
Which brings us back to the start of the radio Well, show. that's always a situation <laughs> when you've got gov- governments that are sort of telling their citizens what to do. It just strikes me that if, if the NDP supports majority rule and uh, so much of its philosophy is based on making sure the majority has its say, my conclusion would be so as long as the majority decides something that New Democrats should be happy with that, regardless of what the government policy is. If the majority decides on it, um, that's fine by you? Well, the policy itself, not that you agree with it. But the, the idea of that is certainly, yep. And so uh, then why, why, is, why would you have an NDP if you're not there to represent a different idea that you want to get into that system? If all you if all you're going to do, if, for example, if we want to do pure majority rule, we wouldn't even need political parties or candidates. We could all get some big supercomputer and have everybody vote on all kinds of issues. Yep. That would and be okay you by you. No. Oh, I mean, we we have <laughs> okay. We have I'm glad to hear you say that. We have a structure. I mean, you know, it, it's uh, you you would be you would be forever okay. Well, we need some shoelaces for. Uh, you know, like for the the, the uh, national swim team, and uh, so let's everybody in the country vote on whether we're going to spend 15 cents on on shoelaces to hold the uh, speedos up of the national swim team. I mean, it gets kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? Precisely, and that's <laughs> why we have representative democracy. <laughs> that's right. Going to leave that one for now. Another break. After we come back, we'll do a smattering of smaller issues just to get some insights on some broader perspectives of the NDP. We'll be back right after this. He's been polluting Jack's mind with notions of equality and compassion. Whatever happened to survival of the fittest? Whatever happened to the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor? Whatever happened to pure, unadulterated greed? You can learn a lot by uh, watching television, I found. It's very educational. For example, if you watch uh, Law and Order, really great crime show, you learn how lawyers speak, don't you? And according to that show, a lawyer can say anything, no matter how mean and insulting, and get away with it. He can just get away with it, no penalty. As long as he says, withdrawn. (laughs) Withdrawn. That's so cool. I wish we could do that. Wouldn't that be great? Get pulled over for speeding by one of those tough highway patrol officers. You know why I pulled you over? <laughs> you thought I was the donut wagon? <laughs> oh, you idiot. Withdrawn. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right with Bob Metz, and I'm joined in the studio today here at CHRW 94.9 by NDP London North Centre candidate Steve Holmes. Uh, Steve, just to go to some broader issues, uh, you know, a lot of people on the basic issue of crime and law and order and justice are thinking that uh, some of our judges have gone mad with some of the... uh, uh, the sentences they give people for certain crimes, almost as though they have withdrawn ju- justice from them. Um, where does the NDP uh, stand on some of the issues that have been particularly plaguing uh, the larger cities and seem to be coming to London now, too, with uh, guns and violence and issues of that nature? Because you'd think that'd be one of the key functions of what a government should be doing. <laughs> and a lot of those issues, we think, come from... Um 
unfairly disadvantaged people in society. <clears throat> we uh, think that uh, uh, if you can make it so that everyone is participating in a in a healthy uh, society, then they, um, I mean, there's an awful lot of benefit there that isn't going their way. If you make sure that the benefits are the going more their way, then of course we believe that uh, uh, they'll more be more contributory as opposed to more ex extracting of our, our social benefits. You know, if I were a victim of a crime, I'd be hearing you say that, and I'm going, yeah, but what about me? And what about the criminal who's now committed a crime? It's too late to be talking about what happened to him 30, 40, 50 years ago in his childhood, or even impossible to decide that. Uh, how does that answer the issue of justice, or, you know, um, in terms of dealing with the, the nature of the crime itself? Hopefully, if you follow the proper steps, the, uh, there will be fewer uh, victims of, of injustices. And when you look at, uh, again, the, the uh, social structures and the way we, we think that some people are being left out of the benefit of society, uh, let, let's, let's look at, for example, uh, when uh, Mike Harris was in, in power and made the cuts to the education system, some of the services they got rid of were things that assisted students in schools when they were having problems. Uh, they still haven't replaced all of the, uh, the services that used to be there so that students could go and talk to a guidance counselor when they were having uh, problems, when they couldn't go talk to a, um, a social worker, when, they, when their parents were fighting at home. And uh, I don't know if, um, if you've ever experienced any of that sort of stuff, but um, I, I happen to uh, know that... Uh, and when a child experiences that sort of stuff, he is more more likely to uh, be a perpetrator later in life. So if, if we had the things in place that assisted those kids in dealing with those kinds of situations, I think we'd have less uh, or fewer uh, victims of crimes to start with. Um, again, that's going back into the past, but, yep. but uh, doesn't deal with how criminals should actually be handled today you know, after they commit a crime. It's one thing to say, uh, you know, we can prevent crime and do X, Y, and Z, but isn't that also taking away a lot of individual responsibility from people? If I see pressure in the family that's putting a lot of pressure on families, it's the rate of taxes and regulations that they're dealing with. And I remember that in my marriage before it split up, and it, the taxes were the single most um, expensive thing in our complete lifestyle. I mean, we, there was no other, not even all of our living expenses combined came close to what we had to pay in combined taxes. But again, you have to look at what you get for those taxes. Nothing. Yeah. I, I, that I couldn't well, get just by paying direct. I'm glad you stayed in. Well, the, then you'd have to depend on each of your neighbors to pave the road in front of their house too because no, you'd pave no, the piece you, of road in front of your you house. Pay, you pay, you'd pay to you pave pay the road, road from your house to that. where you work so that you'd only drive to to and from work. Then when you went to the grocery store, then you'd have to pay a little extra money so that you'd have a piece of road paved from your house to the grocery store. I suppose the area where I'm saying that we shouldn't be spending taxes just on a free system is basically health care and education. Those are the two biggies. That's, that's two-thirds of the Budget. And you think that society doesn't gain anything from the education system? Yeah, and it would gain more if the ed education system allowed for choice, allowed people to you know, pay for their, their own school system. Because the issue of that. not affording, uh, I think, uh, whatever you can't afford, whether it's health care, education, or anything, wouldn't, shouldn't poverty be treated as a separate issue rather than giving out all these freebie programs, which to me are just for buy-in votes? I spoke earlier to you about having things inter interlocking and uh, being connected to each other, and mm -hmm. I believe they are. 
um, agreed. You know, I used to uh, do if many you, shows if with... If you uh, supply a quality education system that's available to everyone, then society in total gains from it. No question. But uh, the, the question is, how should that education system be provided? Should it be provided through a government monopo monopoly that prevents... T to me, quality isn't quality about having choice. If I cannot choose... Uh, to get away from the, the bad school system and go to a good school system or have a choice, where is my quality control? I have to count on a third party to do it then, don't I? The, the, I think, you, to me, you've just mixed up two, two different things, choice and quality. I don't, I well, just, they go hand in hand. Without choice, don't you can't have quality. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. So I guess I'll withdraw from this part of the conversation. <laughs> well, how can you tell? How can you? That's a good. So you brought up a good issue here. How can I tell if I'm getting quality either in the healthcare system or the education system, if I have nothing to compare it to? Isn't quality a measurement of excellence, and isn't it in relative to something else, to something that's of lower quality? And you know, whenever we we hear about quote private education or private healthcare, generally we hear it in terms of superior quality. I guess um, if you had a family member who uh, who uh, went to a clinic and had uh, some surgery done, and it was uh, there was a mistake done in the surgery or whatever, ever, and you were at this private clinic, and the private clinic says, "Well, that's okay. Here, here's the insurance policy that covered us when we did that," as opposed to saying, "You know, well, here's the 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 place that the the structure that's in place, and the College of Physicians are going to rule these people and tell them what they need to do." bring up the standards so you would hope those things didn't happen as often. That's what I see as, as different and not necessarily you don't need to have competition to have uh, a good quality service. Well, that's an interesting <coughs> uh, viewpoint. One, one last one. Uh, McGinty has been thoroughly criticized for his handling of the Caledonia issue and, and basically the Aboriginal issue in the province. Has, has the NDP got a stand on that particular issue? Uh, we we probably take the same stand uh, in the Caledonia issue as we do uh, as we did uh, with the uh, issue at Ipperwash. There's been a there has been a um, a long uh, process that's gone through. There have been some um, uh, recommendations made. They have not been all carried out yet. As a matter of fact, I noticed uh, on the news this morning that one of the lawyers and uh, one of the George brothers was uh, uh, in town. Uh, speaking about uh, about that, and I, I guess the the problem is that's a federal issue, and and the federal government should be um, solving those problems um, more quickly. And okay. getting a signal here, we got a caller wants to ask a question here. Uh, Ira, put us through. Um, hello. Hello. Um, I just wanted to kind of back up a bit and go in back into the uh, private healthcare issue, or not healthcare, sorry, education. Okay, we only got a couple minutes left, though. Okay, well, I just wanted to propose a situation that if you're saying that private education is, like, a better option, then say I'm four years old and about to go into the education system and my parents are can't afford for me to go into school, then you're saying that I shouldn't be able to go to school because my parents can't afford it. Not at all. But really, if I'm four, that shouldn't be, like, something that I should be penalized for just because my parents can't afford it. Like, how am I in like any control of that well again and there the issue is that your your whole situation is an issue of poverty and you deal with the issue of poverty separately you don't create a monopoly school system for a hundred percent of the people who don't need the help 
that that just takes away money from people like you who would need the help. That's how I see it. What about you, Steve? I I I hear what this guy saying. I agree with him. If you if you leave it up to uh, families on their own to purchase their their education, it goes right against what we've been saying all along: is making uh, good quality public education available for everyone, and and by doing that, society uh, becomes more successful. And when become more successful, there's more benefit for everyone to take from it. Okay, one, one, one last thing I just wanted to see if you have the same feeling that I have and some other people have, not so much about policy or anything like that. Do you think the media is giving the voters a fair image of what the parties are all about and what the candidates are all about? Because my personal view is that, especially locally, no, shows like this exist, I realize, but if you look around, is, isn't it kind of hard for the voter to figure out who to pick? Um, interestingly, I'd, I'd say that th- there is a lot of information, only because I uh, have my in-laws and my wife and everything cutting all of the... Uh, uh, the Keeping you up to date <laughs> on everything, eh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't read them all because it just th- there doesn't seem to be enough time for me to do it all, and knocking all the doors, I got it too. But, the, I mean, I, I guess it becomes difficult. Uh, at what point do they say they are... Um, keeping everyone informed and 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 balancing the, making sure that everybody's point of view gets brought forward so well they got yeah, their hand gr- they got their hands full on that one that's for sure <laughs> yeah. hey what do you think uh, how, is Howard Hampton maybe possibly going to be the leader of the official opposition <laughs> well, be nice. actually Howard will be downstairs in yeah. a little while he'll be here this afternoon Excellent. and I uh, hope everybody gets an opportunity to come out and listen to his clear view for the province well I want to thank you Steve for coming out and and uh, you know taking my abuse here for an hour which is <laughs> pretty well what, what I do here on a weekly basis and uh, folks uh, don't forget next week October the 10th is when it all wraps up and those election signs will be disappearing from the landscape shortly thereafter. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. My grandfather. My grandfather was one of the most caring men I ever met in my life, my grandfather. My grandfather came to America with holes in his shoes, with, with torn pants, with a ripped shirt, with nothing but faith and hope and ambition, carrying an old bandana handkerchief round, wrapped around 860000 in cash. <laughs> and he started from, from that and made a, a life. Not funny. You couldn't do it.